Welcome to Mama Talk Talks, A Different Take, a podcast where everyday people around the globe share a different take on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abi Mambo, and I'm pleased you're joining us today. Welcome. Today, I have a very special guest on the show, Isaac Obot from Uganda via, I guess, Mauritius. Is that where you are today, Isaac? Yes, that is accurate. I am in Mauritius right now. So welcome. And in lieu of me introducing you, just tell our audience who you are. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Like you said, my name is Isaac Oboth. I was born and raised in Kampala, and I am a self-taught filmmaker. I've been making films and making content for the past 12 years. I was fortunate that I got this curiosity to learn how to work with cameras and editing software at a very young age, or relatively young age, at the age of 18. And it fascinated me then, and it's continued to fascinate me until today. Awesome. So Isaac, when we first met, this was, I think, two or three years ago at the African Leadership Network gathering in Mauritius. And at the time, I first heard your story, which was really fascinating to me about how you got your start as an entrepreneur. So can you share that story again? I just really like hearing it. It's a very inspiring one. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, so I run a production company called African Storytellers. And our mission as a company is to rewrite the story of Africa using film. For far too long, Africa has been associated with only negative stereotypes war, disease, famine, and for some of us that were born on the continent and still live there today, we know that there's much more going on in Africa than just that. Um, yeah. So what we're trying to do as African storytellers is to shine the light on positive stories from the continent, and we focus on five main key themes, African beauty, enterprise, excellence, ingenuity, and resilience. Oh, and wow. Sorry, go on. No, I said, oh, wow, I, I wasn't aware of this part. We'll talk about that. I'm, I'm interested. Just yeah. keep, keep on. <laughs> yeah, so that's where we are today. You know, and we produce a lot of content for uh, CNN International. We do their feature Africa shows. We should produce and edit uh, shows like African Voices, Inside Africa, and Marketplace Africa. Ah. Uh, and that's where we are today. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, your question. Yeah, my question was how you got started on your entrepreneurial how journey. How you got started, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm going to give a backstory now. So... If I'm to trace the start of this journey, it would go back to a time when I was in boarding school, when I was 16 years old. And I was in boarding school in Uganda, very typical, traditional, orthodox boarding school, uh, nothing fancy. Every day started at 4.40 in the morning, you know, with, with a bell ringing, and then yes. everyone had their chores. <laughs> You're told where you had to go and scrub and clean. And after doing that for about 30 minutes, you took a very cold shower, put on your school uniform and lined up for what was a very, very basic breakfast. I Sounds mean, you're lucky like if there was any sugar in the porridge. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's this classic boarding school experience that many Africans have gone through. And I went to one of those proper hardcore boarding schools. And in boarding school, the only thing that really matters, the number one most important thing is academics. So it's almost like faith that if you do well in academics, then you're set for life. Nothing else really matters. If you're an A student, you're going to go on and make a lot of money. You're going to have an incredibly great marriage. You're going to have a great <laughs> legacy. You know, it's like it's a silver bullet for everything. So yes. we all focus on academics. We had morning prep, which was mandatory reading, every single day at six a.m. You just sit there in pin drop silence, reading until seven a.m. Seven a.m. We had roll call, 
teachers would come in class and make sure everyone was still there. No one had escaped. And then we had classes all the way until 4.40 p.m. We had a short break for supper. And then we had prep again from uh, 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. I find uh, it amazing that, that in most of these schools, like you grew up in Kampala. I grew up in Yaounde and Bamenda. Yeah. And a lot of the lingo you're using is exactly what I use going to boarding school <laughs> on the other side of the continent, yeah. right? Prep time, yeah, the yeah. whole schedule, waking up at five o'clock in the morning for us, the cold showers, everything. It's amazing how similar it is. It's like one person designed yeah. this thing across the continent. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating, you know. And I enjoy having these, these conversations about time in boarding school. Although it was difficult, we still find a lot of humor in those challenge bandits that's the stuff that i can say for a fact built me yeah i built a lot of people i know and to think but, how yeah, young we were when we started how old were you i was 10 when i went to boarding school how old were you i went a little bit later i went at uh, 13 okay yeah my siblings my brother went when he was seven my sister my also God. went when she was seven I have a 10-year-old. He's almost 10. He'll be 10 in a few weeks. And I cannot imagine him in boarding school, even though I was in boarding school every day. I'm like, he's not ready, right? I feel like maybe I'm a bad mom because maybe he's ill-equipped for the whole waking up at 5 o'clock, cold water, bummy tree full of other kids. It's interesting. Anyway. Yeah, it was for a different generation. There's boarding schools these days. Well, it's like kind of soft boarding school where you drop <laughs> off your kids on Monday and pick them up on Friday. <laughs> so maybe that that's a model that you could consider. <laughs> I think our parent generation was not about that life. They thought, if you're going to yeah. go, just be going for three months. I'll see you later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so in boarding school, you didn't get to see your parents. We had this thing called visiting day, and yeah. it happened once every three months, so once a term. It was... For obvious reasons, the most exciting day in boarding school because that's when your parents came and checked <laughs> on you, made sure that you're still alive. You had uh, your goodies replenished, up. yeah. Yes, exactly. Everyone, you had a nice home cooked meal, and obviously, being from Uganda and a typical African family, there's plenty of meat with these meals. You know, and you don't get to eat any meat in boarding school, so that was always exciting. You got some pocket money. You essentially had these picnics out on the on the lawns of the school. And everything felt like it was in color yeah. on visiting day. Yeah. You had a laughter, you know, you could see kids playing with their siblings, just running around the school court. It was a great day. But still answering your question about how I got started, I remember one particular visiting day when I was 16 years old in boarding school. And it was almost the end of the day, you know, the sun was starting to set. And like I described, it just felt like happiness. But I was panicking on this particular visiting day because I hadn't been visited yet. Mm. And at the time, my brother, who is five years older than me, was my guardian. He's the one that was taking care of everything. You know, he paid my school fees. He, he gave me pocket money. And he was my best friend. Like, my world revolved around him. Oh. So I, yeah, I see him walking towards the school gate. And it's literally like 10 minutes to the end of the day. You know, so I, I run up to him and I give him this huge hug. And I tell him, man, never, ever do that to me again. I thought you had forgotten about visiting day, which is, I mean, it could happen, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and for people who don't have this experience, it's hard to fathom how important that one day is, right? When you feel like you're not caught up from your family and the rest of the world. And when you don't have a visitor, it it feels like the end of the world. Like you were just abandoned. Yeah, because everyone else is being visited. You know, it's like the the world remembers everyone else but you. Yeah. (laughs) Almost like getting left behind the rapture, you know, that that's kind of like the feeling, you know. <laughs> the rapture. So, 
So yeah, I hug him and he tells me, this is probably one of the shortest conversations I've ever had in my life. And it changed my life. My big brother told me, you know, Isaac, I lost my job. I'm not going to be able to give you any pocket money. I didn't come with any food or snacks for you. And I don't think I'll be able to pay your school fees for this time. Mm. So, you know, he told me, man, if, if there's anything you can do to make money, go ahead and do it. And that completely changed what my priorities were. You know, all I cared about before this was academics because I felt like that was going yeah. to be my way out. Um, yeah. But here I was just being told that yeah, I wasn't going to work anymore. We're basically at the end of the road. Um, it's a night prep on boosting day. As was the culture, everyone brought their food together and kind of ate communally, you know? They shared everything. So if someone's mom had made chicken, someone else's mom had made like fish fingers, whatever it was, everyone just put their food on one big giant suitcase and everyone ate. So it was like a big party that happened at the night. But not uh, not for you, not for you on that day. No. I feel like I was at the end of my road. So I was just laying down on my bed, staring at the ceiling, and all my friends were, you know, having this big party just around me. I just couldn't partake. I just wanted to pause there a little bit because there is every great person I've read about, every person that I meet. You ask them this question, what is the defining moment of your life? And some of them have had it yet and others haven't. Was your brother's visit that day the defining moment of your life so far? Or is there another one? Well, I mean, this one was pretty monumental. And it's, yeah, it's, it's also the fact that I was old enough to remember it and realize the consequences of what was happening. Uh, yeah, this is definitely, that conversation I had with him, that's what determined the path that I've been on for the last at least 15 years. Yeah. So he's gone home and you're in the dorm with the boys and everybody's eating and you're staring at the ceiling and then what happens? Yeah, and uh, one of my classmates, you know, with his mouthful of food <laughs> said, man, today we're eating like kings, but tomorrow, yeah, the same time tomorrow, we're all going to be starving. <laughs> and <laughs> that was my light bulb moment right there. That's when I got the idea for my first business which was essentially to make a snack that I could sell to all these starving kids in the dormitory every day after night prep. It was presented to me on a, on a silver platter, really. Um, so the next day, 4.40 in the morning, the bell rang. I did my chores. I had my cold shower, lined up for my basic breakfast, went for prep. And as soon as I was done with all that, 7 a.m., I ran straight to the food and nutrition laboratory. And I talked to the guy that used to run the lab. He was a, called a lab assistant. Mr. Matov, when I told him I have this idea to make a snack that I can sell to kids in the dormitory every day after night prep, I don't know anything about cooking or food, but <laughs> I, you know, he had the skills. So I told him, you know, I want to work with you to make something that we can sell to all these kids. And uh, he had a few suggestions, but the one that we ended up settling on was this thing called a rock band, which for anyone that hasn't tried one, it's basically what you'd get if a cookie and a muffin had a baby. <laughs> that sounds like um, a lot of sweets. <laughs> it is delicious. It, it, don't get me wrong. It's a, it, it's a very, very good tasting snack. I'd like it's, to try uh, But it's that. also very healthy. So it uh, has this thin, rough, hard crust on the outside, but it's extremely soft and moist on the inside. What's it Actually, called again? A, a rock band. Hmm. We call them rock bands. And can we yeah. find a recipe online or something? Is this a pretty... I'm sure you can. So okay. I don't know if you can do, you can make them the way Mr. Matobo did. Eh? I probably <laughs> can't. I probably can't. This one sounds like a legend, like a rock band legend there. <laughs> yeah, no, he had the right balance. You know, I mean, his rock bands were so good. You didn't even need, you didn't need a drink to enjoy his rock bands. They 
would just melt in your mouth. <laughs> he got the ratios right. So yeah, this rock band idea seemed really exciting, but high school kids, especially in rural parts of Africa, are probably the most price sensitive beings in the universe. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and by price sensitive, you uh, mean they don't have any money. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, just the difference of half a cent can change a purchasing decision. So yeah. <laughs> for this idea to make sense, we had to operate at scale, which meant, you know, I had to buy ingredients in bulk, but I didn't have a coin to my name. And Mr. Matobu also didn't have any money. He didn't have any savings. But fortunately for me, I had friends and they had all been visited the day before. So I wrote down this list of ingredients and I needed about uh, $60 at the time. And you collected uh, to, to their, their pocket money. money. <laughs> What's that? And I said, you started collecting their pocket money. Yeah, yeah. I borrowed, you know, just a little bit from about 10 guys. Anyone that would lend me, you know, $5, $7. I borrowed money and I told them you know, in about a month, I'd be able to pay them back. So I got this uh, no interest loans and I went downtown in Kampala, a place called Chukubo, and I bought myself a carton of flour, a bucket of margarine, tray of eggs, some sugar, and I took the ingredients to the food and nutrition laboratory and Mr. Matobu began baking the rock bands. And I clearly remember the first day he baked uh, the rock bands. It was about 8.30 p.m. in the middle of night prep. You yeah. know, it was complete silence. Everyone is just staring at their books, uh, trying to cram all these uh, <laughs> facts. <laughs> it's eerie how similar this is, I swear. It's just <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, and then the smell, I mean, the most delicious pastry in the world just started going through the classroom. And no one knew what was going on. I mean, <laughs> guys began murmuring, stomachs were rumbling. <laughs> and I was just smiling to myself because I knew what was happening. Yeah, you, know? you knew what was coming. And you had orchestrated it. I knew it. what was coming. <laughs> exactly. I just shut up and let to take its course. So at the end of prep that night, I went and picked up the box of rock bands that Mr. Matova had baked. And there were about 100 rock bands. I walked to that box of rock bands towards my dormitory. And as I was walking there, I was thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to tell these guys to make them buy these, these rock bands. I needed to sell every single rock band. Yeah. But, you know, even before I could come up with a smart tagline or a sales pitch of some kind, as soon as my classmates saw me standing there with this box of rock bands, I was stampeded. I sold every single rock band in under five minutes. So the product sold itself? Yeah. These guys were, there was nothing else. After night prep, no canteens are open. And in most homes in Uganda, we have late suppers. You know, we have suppers yeah. at like 9 p.m., mm -hmm. some places at 10 p.m. So these guys were hungry. So it was just perfect venture. And three weeks in, it was working completely independently of me. <laughs> so I had a border, which is a motorcycle taxi, deliver the ingredients from downtown Kampala to the Puja Nutrition Laboratory. Wow. And Mr. Moto baked the rock bands and we began making different flavors. We're making vanilla, strawberry, cinnamon, ginger. And I had kids from different dormitories come and pick up boxes of rock bands and sell them. So my only job was really quality control. So I used to test the rock bands to make oh, sure that. Yeah, well, I would like that job too, quality control. <laughs> Let's see it's how good this, this batch is today. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I paid back my friends that I borrowed money from and I was able to make enough passive income to actually stay in school. So it changed 
that experience of creating something that can create value, work independently of me, and make everyone around it happy. You know, Mr. Matobu was able to make extra money. I had money to keep me in school. My friends had a delicious, healthy snack every day after night prep. You know, it was just like, it was perfect. And after doing that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, that's what I wanted to do uh, for the rest of my life, if I could, you know. So that's where the interest in business started for me. And, and you were 16. Yeah, I was uh, 16 years old. I'm just trying to think what I was doing when I was 16. I wasn't running any kind of enterprise, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, man, but you know, I didn't like come up with an idea and, and then go and decide to do this thing. It was because of that conversation with my brother. That's what pushed me in a corner and I had to kind of push my, find my way out. Isn't that what entrepreneurship in some sense is about? It's about opportunities present themselves, right, in the best, the worst of circumstances. And then you decide what you're going to do with that opportunity. In this case, you seized it and ran with it. Yeah, I got lucky that a few things lined up. The fact that it was visiting day, the fact that I had my friends say, you know, we're going to be starving tomorrow. The fact that they all had pocket money that I could borrow yeah. and go downtown. The fact that Mr. Matobu existed and was willing to actually work with a 16-year-old kid to make a snack. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like the stars lined up, honestly, uh, to make it work for me. And I'm grateful. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Isaac, I mean, just from this segment, I have so many questions for you, right? It's like, what did your brother think about this? Where's your brother now? Where's Mr. Matogo now? Yeah. Oh, just all these things you talked about just reminiscing on, on African boarding schools. And I'm just thinking, was that the right thing? Letting children go to boarding school at age seven or 10? But then I think, is it not? This for me is just like, it's shooting up all kinds of ideas. But before I get ahead of myself, you did this for a number of years. But what we talked about at the very beginning is what you do now, which is really around telling stories. And this whole rock band business, was not about stories. So how did you get on the path then of storytelling and how did that become a venture in and of itself for you? Yes, I ran the rock band business for uh, two years and right before I was going to uh, graduate uh, from uh, high school, it was maybe about a month to, to our prom and this excitement of prom just, I mean, it was overwhelming. It's all everyone was thinking and talking about, you know, who's your date going to be? What are you going to wear? I, it was just, it was palpable. And I had money saved for my rock band business. I'd made quite a bit of money. I actually opened up an account with a school buster who's like the school accountant. So that's why I used to deposit my savings every week. I was thinking to myself, this rock band thing has been great, but I didn't want to be remembered as the rock band guy. You know, I was thinking about my legacy in school. <laughs> you know? uh, Ironically, I, though, here we are talking about yeah. rock band some 15 years later, almost, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I had money and there was this excitement. So I got this idea to make an album, an alumni album, but based on the day of prom. So basically take everyone's pictures when they're all dressed up with their dates and print this beautiful, almost like a coffee table book, hardcover album that I could sell to all my classmates. And I talked to, to, to my classmates about it and they liked the idea. They thought if, if I made this album, it's something that they would buy. So I put down the cost, like what would it take to make a high quality alumni album? Mm -hmm. And I went back downtown and I talked to 
a company called Doliko in Uganda, and they were they did some of the best print work in the country. And they gave me a quotation to make my my album, and it was six thousand dollars <laughs> to make this album. Wow! So I've been making some money, but not that kind of money. I didn't have six well, grand. When you say six thousand dollars, is this USD? You're talking about yes, USD. Yeah, six thousand. So it was My about goodness. 18, 18 million. Yeah. What kind of money did you have in the bank? <laughs> What's that? I said, what kind of money did you have in the bank at that age? <laughs> I did not. I did not have that kind of money, and I didn't realize how expensive this thing was going to be to make. So obviously, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to make this thing. But when I looked at the quotation that they, they had given me, I realized very quickly that 80% of the cost of making the album was all print-related. Mm. So it was, you know, stuff like uh, color separation, making of plates, binding, laminating. And I realized, you know, if I got rid of print, then this album idea could actually become a reality. Yeah. And that's when I got the idea to make a digital alumni album based on the day of prom. And that became even more exciting because making it digital and putting it on a CD meant I could add things like music, I could add some text and some basic animation and actually tell the story of prom, you know? So I went back to my classmates and I told them, you know, that I, I have a, a, what I think is an even better idea and to make a digital look like album. And I described it to them. And they said, man, you make that thing, we'll buy it. We want what you've described to us, you know? I mean, after the um, success of the rock up. band, I'd sign up too. <laughs> it's like, I'm oh, buying yeah. what this guy is selling. Exactly, right? Especially because of, the excitement from prom. Um, yeah. So I didn't have the skills to make this digital alumni album. So I went back downtown and I, I was looking for someone that could do this for me. I was introduced to a guy that used to uh, shoot a lot of weddings in town. And I described to him what I wanted to make. And he said it was basic, basically. What I was asking for was a slideshow. And he said he could do it in his sleep. So we agreed on a price. And the day of prom came, I took a couple of pictures, my friends took pictures, I gathered all those SD cards and took them downtown. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman promised me he'd get me 250 DVDs, branded and look really nice, and I paid him. I gave him all the money that I had at the time, all my savings. And two weeks later, he delivered a box of 250 DVDs, wow. branded, from 2006-2007. Uh, DVD looked really nice. I was so excited. I ran up to the computer laboratory at school and I, I put in one of those DVDs and I began watching the slideshow, which ended up being quite bad, actually. <laughs> it was a <laughs> terrible product. So you hadn't done quality control in that wrong. case. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no quality control. <laughs> yeah. The music was terrible. The pictures did come up chronologically. It just didn't make any sense. You know, some of them were oriented the wrong way. You know, they were landscape, but they were shown portrait, portrait, but shown landscape. And then some of the pictures that he chose to put in were, you know, out of focus. It was and this whole segment of guys just eating food. <laughs> I didn't get it. And I was concerned that I was going to lose all my money because yeah. I, I thought, you know, if any of my classmates watched what was on any of these DVDs, I wasn't going to sell a copy. But the crazy thing is, when my classmates watched it, they wouldn't stop laughing, man. Uh, they, <laughs> you know, guys surrounded the computer. They went and called more guys, and it just became this huge fascination. And I, it was I struggled bad, to huh? understand. <laughs> exactly. It was one of those things that was so bad, it was good. <laughs> yeah. 
So I, I sold every single DVD. I sold out in about three days. I actually, we made a deluxe version. We added a few more pictures. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and sold it at, at a higher price. <laughs> I made more money from that DVD slideshow than I had made uh, doing rock bands for two years. Oh, wow. You know? That's an example of technological advances. You went from cooking stuff to putting stuff on DVDs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the price yeah. point went up on full. Same, same opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So in Uganda, we have this long holiday before you go to university after high school. It's about six months. And I went through that holiday with this immense curiosity about what it takes to make good quality videos or good mm. quality content. Because I saw that people were willing to pay so much for something that I personally thought was terrible. It was rubbish, honestly. Yeah. My guys were paying a premium price for it. So I was just really wondering how much more would they pay for it if it's done well. Yeah. And one of my friends worked at computer, a kiosk, an internet cafe. So I'd go and visit him and just go on Google and search, you know, what does it take to make good quality videos? And at first I would do it maybe like two times a week. I'd just go there and sit for like 30 minutes, see, see what articles came up, what videos came up. But the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn, you know, and mm -hmm. it became like a thirst that I couldn't quench. A few weeks in, I was spending 16 hours a day just watching tutorial after tutorial. I downloaded some software and I began experimenting with editing. And I would spend my whole night in this cafe just watching tutorials and playing with software. Wow. You, know? you have a social life, a girlfriend. What was happening with your friend? No, nah, man. <laughs> I, I was a very... It's like when I liked something, when I got an interest in something, everything else just faded. Ah. Um, so that's the kind of person I was. So for a long time, it was academics, and that's all that mattered. Then I got that rock band experience, and that made me curious about business. So I read a lot of business books, even before I did any other business. I read, you know, things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The E-Myth. And then when it became this video thing, you know, like, I had no social life. I also couldn't afford a social life, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just watched a bunch of tutorials, and... I went back to my high school and I talked to the guy that was organizing the prom of the graduating class that year. And I told him, you know what, for my year, I made this slideshow thing, but I can do one for you that is 10 times better and I'll do it at half the price. So I basically gave this guy a deal he could not say no to. And yeah. for me, I really wanted to test out my skills on a real project, you know, like a real, real world project. So we shook hands, he gave me the job and... Their prom day came, I got two of my friends. We rented some basic camcorders, went and, and filmed their prom. And I spent the next three weeks editing that prom video. I made about 300 DVDs for him and I took them to back to the school and I was paid. I, I ended up making about $100 in, in profit. And that's the money that I used to register my company. Oh, wow. wow. So my, my, my media company. And that's, uh, that's how the journey started. And that was... November 10th, 2000 and 2008, when I just said the company name. So that's 11, 11 years, just about. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I mean, that's such a fascinating story for me because I always ask entrepreneurs, especially those like you who kind of came into it from the get-go, but also those who left something behind, like a regular nine-to-five job to go pursue this thing. I just I wonder, what is the driving force? What is the thing 
inside of you that tells you yes take this chance or this is a good opportunity or just try it out like wh- what is that thing that drives you well for me it was the experience of uh running that rock band business and having it work independently of me mm-hmm. and making everyone happy so it's almost like an act of creation it is extremely satisfying mm-hmm. uh, to feel responsible for something like that that's definitely something that inspired me to keep moving but i've never been employed I, i have nothing else to compare it to maybe if i did it would be harder to do but this this is all i know you know i mean it's what i've been doing since since i left high school you know that line you just said i have never been employed is such an interesting line because without the context it could be anything right it could be i come from a long line of money <laughs> i've never been employed or i've hustled my whole life and worked for myself yeah. it is very powerful in the context that we're talking about because i know we've had in the last probably 15 to 20 years on the continent this huge wave of empowerment right which and actually probably when i was younger because i remember my mom used to hustle right you had this whole with, with the way the economies in most african countries people had were setting up their own side businesses so i think the hustle has always kind of been there At one point she had yeah. like a hair salon and a glass cutting business. You know it's like what but maybe are you really going to cut glass? But that that was the hustle. <laughs> <laughs> right? The hustle was always there. We talk about innovation and entrepreneurship now in a very kind of almost didactic way now. Whereas if I really yeah. think about it, this is what I saw growing up that had a job mom had her small side businesses but they were no less important than the um, than the office job yeah you yeah, know that's true there's a lot of hustle in africa i mean you can see it when you just observe the streets of any of our major cities you yeah. know it's nairobi or i mean you just see the people working people trying to sell something trying to build something and i think what has changed over the past decade at least for me is it's gone from almost a desperation or a survival and now there's this there's this optimism you know mm. um, people are able to see what is possible they will see what other people have built people around them they will now have a lot of success stories and that has gone on to inspire other people to go and create so yeah i think it's a, it's a really good time to be on the continent yeah and we'll come back to some of the work that you're doing now around African entrepreneurs. But in 2015, Forbes named you one of the 30 most promising young entrepreneurs. And then I came across this article, I think it was in We Tracker, which was titled, I found this title interesting, The Poor Orphan Boy Who Went From Rock Bottom to Rock Star in a Flash. And in between, <laughs> you've been the subject of countless news stories and you've spoken at different conferences. How much of this is is still surreal to you when you think about that boy who was waiting for his older brother to show up on visiting day yeah it's happened over 12 years so mm-hmm. i feel like i've had time to digest it it's been slow so it's not shocking or surprising but like i said at the start i feel very fortunate that the stars lined up because and even when i go back to uganda these days there are a lot of people that have not been able to make it out Yeah. to achieve success because there are a lot of things that need to happen it's not it's you could be really hard working you could be talented and my goodness there's so much talent in Africa and in Uganda you know i see it what is what people are able to do 
but it's not enough, man. You also need to be in the right place at the right time with the skills that, that are necessary to take you to the next level. So I've been lucky. I've definitely found myself in the right place at the right time many, many times. And I've been fortunate that the time when that happens, I had spent maybe the last six months uh, working on a skill that was important or that was necessary. So I feel very fortunate that kid that, you know, was waiting for his brother to come and visit him on visiting day can now run a business like African Storytellers, can work with clients like CNN, yeah, International, I mean, the, MasterCard. That is amazing. That is amazing. You talk about stars aligning and you kind of look at that journey. It's, it's very much a Cinderella story, right? And when I say Cinderella, and I, th- I think you are a man, <laughs> not a fairy tale yeah, princess. But I mean, that, that's the idea. I'm still curious, where is your brother today? My brother moved back to Uganda about two years ago, and he works with Coca-Cola. Okay. He is, he is the director of sales for Coca-Cola in oh, Uganda. Wonderful. And how is he taking this in? I'm one of those people I always think about the people who are around you or who are around you when your journey, whatever that journey was started, and kind of where are they now in that sense. So you said at the very beginning of this that you looked up to him. He was pretty much your whole world. So do you still have that big brother, little brother connection going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my relationship with my brother is a bit strange because he raised me. So it's the kind of relationship that most people have with their fathers. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of reverence. Yeah, I still look up to him a lot. And it wasn't, it's not like, oh, when he was able to support me through school, that's where it ended. No, he got another job and he's always been there for me. Actually, the truth is I wouldn't have been able to take the risks that I've taken if he wasn't a part of my life. Yeah. Because I always felt like, you know, if any of the stuff I'm doing fails, at least I'll have a couch I can go and sleep on. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. he's been a, a huge pillar of support. Whether it came to borrowing money to do a job, to do a gig, or borrowing his car to go out for a meeting or whatever it was, he's just always been someone that, I've been able to rely on and I continue to rely on. I think I really love that that you talked about that because I think a lot of times, stories I hear about a lot of entrepreneurs is, you know, you step out on faith, right? And to hear that actually there is a lot of faith, but it's also that one person or that core group of people that you know, if push came to shove and things fail, you have something to fall back on. Because I think what holds yeah. a lot of people back from wanting to step off the ledge and just really like go do what they want to do is this whole sense of security, right? Innate in every one of us is this need to know that at the end of the day, I'm going to have a spoon of rice put in my mouth. But we don't always hear that part of entrepreneur's journey or story. So I'm really, really grateful that you talked about that. And as much as... You were bold and had these opportunities and the stars aligned and you, you followed them. Now, at the back of your mind, there was someone there that you counted on to be there for you if things didn't go the way they went. And thankfully, they did. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it without that support. That's a fact. I would have tried and get, to get more security. I would have uh, probably applied for a nine-to-five job and eased my way into becoming an entrepreneur. I wouldn't have done it from day one. Yeah, yeah. So... When we met a few weeks ago, I think it was, we were talking about some of the interesting work you're doing right now, African Storytellers. Can you shed light on some of what that work is? Yes. With African Storytellers, our mission is to rewrite the story of Africa using film. 
So we produce positive content about Africa. But we are a business. We are not an NGO. Yeah. So we need to make money. I, I have a team of 10 employees or full-time employees uh, based in Kampala. They have to pay their taxes. They, they have uh, to get their social security benefits. So in achieving this mission, we still need to uh, money. We need to make a profit. Yep. So what we're doing is twofold. One, we, we find these incredible stories that I know and my team knows Africans will feel proud to have watched. And the rest of the world will also have a very good impression of the continent. And at the same time, we find people that are willing to pay money for these stories. Yep. So a good marriage for us has been uh, the work that we do with CNN International. Uh, they produce arguably the, the uh, largest amount of content on Africa right now. So before working with us, they used to fly a lot of teams from Atlanta and from London to come and produce this content. And that obviously cost you know time and money, but it's, it wasn't too much money for CNN. So what, what our pitch was to them is, you don't have to fly cruise here, we're on the ground, we can do it, we can produce the same quality. And maybe we can even surpass the quality that, that you might have been creating already. Right, you have an ear for what's really going on on the ground. Exactly, that's what makes all the difference. Our connections within Africa, you know, the fact that I can actually call up a friend of mine in Cameroon and say, I'm looking for someone that is a talented dancer that is working in areas A, B, and C. Do you have any suggestions? The kind of stories that you wouldn't find from Googling in Atlanta, they have access to. Yeah, Google doesn't do everything. Uh, Beyond that, because this really matters to me and to my team, we find that we go above and beyond what a foreign crew would do. So, for instance, if it would maybe take a foreign crew two days to to work on a story, it's a quick in and out. We are willing to spend, you know, five or six days to create this beautiful montage, this portrait of this African that's doing great work. And it comes through uh, in the final product. I'd like to believe that when you see uh, the pieces done by African storytellers, there is almost, there's a distinction to them. And you can tell that it's been done with a certain level of regard that maybe someone that's not from here wouldn't do. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah, we work a lot with CNN. We should produce and edit their feature Africa shows. So we do 100% send them finished products. Okay. We also work with like-minded organizations. We do a lot of work with the African Leadership Group. Uh, so that's with the African Leadership Academy that's based in Johannesburg, but also now with the campuses that they have for the universities. And that's why I'm in Mauritius right now, because I'm doing work with the university here okay. and in Kigali. And they are incredible stories on the continent. So when organizations like MasterCard, for instance, want to create content from Africa, they found it to be beneficial to work with an African company to do that because, yep. again, because of our access. So, so yeah, that, that is the essence of what we're doing right now. We do two forms of content, documentaries and narrative content as well. So with the documentary content, that's something that we've been doing for a really long time now, and that's a muscle that we've been able to build. Okay. That comes very, very naturally for us. And we recently started making narrative form content because we believe that's where we can achieve even more scale. So we just did our first uh, short narrative film, and it's a 30-page script that I wrote myself, and it is based on my story in boarding school about how (laughs) I started my first rock band business and then how that... Uh, became this DVD slideshow for my classmates on prom. So that's our first short film. I entered it into a couple of festivals. Wow. And uh, we'll start hearing back 
And hopefully it's a proof of concept that we can go and make more narrative films, you know, films like uh, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind or The Queen of Katwe. That's the kind of content that we want to make. Uh, I'm sure that there's there's many, many more stories like that and even more powerful stories in Africa right now. We just need people that are going to make it their mission to find those stories and tell them to Africans and to the rest of the world. And to do them justice. Yeah. Yes. On this topic... What do you think about the whole controversy with Lionheart, Genevieve Nagy's Lionheart and the Academy Awards? Because I'm sitting here thinking, so are you going to shoot your movies in English? <laughs> if you want a shot yeah. someday um, at Best Foreign Film. What's your thought on that whole thing? Well, first of all, I think that's unfortunate. The, the rules need to be revisited. I've watched Lionheart. I liked it. It's a good movie. It's a good film. And, you know, to see that it was directed by Genevieve and she stars in it. She deserves to be on any platform. She deserves to compete yeah. <laughs> with anyone from around the world. You know, she yeah. made a good movie. Now that should be the number one most important thing. That's the like most important criteria, you know? So that the rules need to be revisited. I make movies right now, I make them in the language that feels right. So like the um, our narrative short film, which is called Lights Out, it's I'd say 50% Luganda, maybe more, it's probably 60% Luganda and 40% English, because that's the way we speak. You know, we mix up languages, there's certain words that are kind of abhorred from other tribes, wanted it to feel authentic. So I'm going to try and continue to do that, to make movies in the language that feels right uh, for that film. Which means potentially you could be navigating several languages in a movie, which in the African context yes. is very normal. Yep, exactly. And we just have exactly. to, to deal with these realities. I know growing up, it was, you know, speaking English at home and in school with the grandparents speaking pidgin and growing up in Yaoundé in the neighborhood speaking French. And that was just the reality of what it was. So to shoot a movie yeah. in just one of those languages would be completely artificial and would not represent exactly. what that experience really is. Exactly. So I've learned a lot from you today. One of the things I've learned is how to make lemonade out of lemons. Um <laughs> You know, when the stars align, just taking chances and stepping out in faith, but also kind of, you know, making sure you have that person that stands with you. But we have a fun part towards the end. Before we get to that, I'm curious, you talked about telling the African story. So on the one yes. hand, I'm curious, what is African to you? And on the other side, you talked about telling positive African stories. How do we balance out the realities of African life, which, you know, has challenges as well as it has joys? How do you balance that in the context of a positive narrative about Africa? Okay, so to be honest, I am biased. And <laughs> African Storytellers is a biased organization because we tell only positive stories. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's because there's been this huge imbalance, you know, for a long time, there's an overwhelming amount of negative stories in Africa. You don't Agreed. have to go far, you'll find, you know. So we first of all have to make things balanced. We have to create a more accurate narrative, a more accurate depiction of, of the continent. So for the foreseeable future, I'm only going to be working on positive stories. Those are the only stories that I seek out, the only stories that will develop. And those are the only stories that are going to take our time and energy. I um, love that you're unapologetic about it because you're right. The pendulum has to be swung back to the middle, right? I mean, it's yeah. just now that people are starting to realize, a lot of people, that Africa is not a country. Yeah. 
So yeah, that is our focus, you know. So those are the only stories that we seek out. The I mentioned at the beginning that the five areas of interest for us are African beauty, African excellence, African enterprise, ingenuity, and resilience. So that last one, resilience, is what might touch on a few of just this idea of going on against something that is incredibly difficult, but still being able to succeed. So it's for us, it's about, you know, what is the essence of the story? What remains with people after they watch the story, you know? Yeah. They feel better about Africa. They feel better about African people. They feel better about continent. It's, it's like the, the, the taste that stays in your mouth. So you know, as long as it has that, as long as it does that, then that's something that we, we will work on as African storytellers. Okay. Awesome. I'm just really, really thankful that you spend this time with me and with the audience. And Isaac, before we go, and as my voice is fitting out here, I do have a few fun questions for you. And I want you to actually consider coming back to the show because we would love to have you. I think there's just so much that you shared today that I haven't had a chance to unpack that I want to come back to in a future date. So would you visit us again? Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot because it's easier to get a yes <laughs> that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're married with two little ones. It's two, right? Yes, two. What is the dream that you have for your two little ones growing up in Africa as we know it today and not the Africa where you and I kind of came up? What dreams do you have for them in this changing phase of Africa? My dream is, you know, the fact that when they grow up and they are ready to work and contribute, they won't feel like they'll need to leave Africa in order for them to come relevant to the continent. Because right now, unfortunately, that is still mm -hmm. uh, a reality. With this thing with Genevieve, you know, we still care a lot about this external validation. Yeah. Uh, you know, to get that nod from CNN or from the Academy means much more than to get that nod from the new vision from Kampala or, you know, uh, any other publication from, from Africa. We still care a lot about what the rest of the world has to say about us. So yeah. I hope that, you know, over the next uh, two decades or so, that will change, that we'll find uh, that our own validation matters just as much or even more, and that uh, we, we can depend a lot on ourselves and we'll have the skills that are necessary to, to bring prosperity and peace uh, throughout the continent. I really like that. I mean, as somebody who left the continent when I was 16, you know, that's something I can really appreciate. It would have been great to grow up then have the same opportunities, but, you know, life is what it is. We owe it to the next generation to make the continent as, you know, conducive to growth and in every sense of the word and across every arena. Because um, I think yeah. with you, I mean, having to step off that silver bullet path, right, of education and go be more artistic. It's not something that um, is usually encouraged by our parents because they're thinking, how will you feed yourself? So there's a commitment there yeah. that we need to make to the next generation to say we will do our darnest to make sure that you have what we didn't have. Um, on that note, a few fun questions for you. And you have to pick one. You can't say both. Or neither. <laughs> okay. Are you okay. Ready? I'll try. All right. Tiwa Savage or Yemi Alade? Uh, Yemi. Okay. Titanic or Avatar? 
Oh man, uh, Titanic. <laughs> okay. Ice cream or yogurt? Ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you had to live outside of Africa, which continent would you rather live on? Asia or Europe? Asia. Do you prefer the moon or the sun? The moon. <laughs> I'm so curious about that one. One of the rules of this game is I don't get to ask why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beer or wine? Uh, say it one more time. Beer or wine? Beer. And last but not least, safari or the beach for a vacation? Safari. Wonderful. Well, Isaac, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really, really pleased to have spent this hour with you. I'm looking forward to your forthcoming work. And I forgot to ask you, where can we find the show, the, the documentary, I think you said, that you're now putting through the different festivals? What's the title and where can we find it? Uh, so it's called Lights Out. The short film is called Lights Out. And the, the series of documentaries is called uh, The Audacious Ones. Uh, you can find the trailers on our Vimeo channel. So if you go to Vimeo, there's forward slash African Storytellers. Okay. But also on our website, AfricanStorytellers.com. Wonderful. So I will put that on our website so people can find it. Again, Isaac, thank you so much. And until the next time, have a wonderful, wonderful week rest of your day. Right. Awesome. I thank you for, for having me. This is a, an incredible initiative. Thank you for putting it together and spending the time with me. I, I appreciate it. No, absolutely. And hopefully, <laughs> I'll be coming to you saying, whose story can we tell on Mama Talk Talk? And, you know, in our own <laughs> ways, we can get those African stories out. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Take good care. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please share your thoughts in the comment section or by emailing ab at mamatalktalk.com. Continue the conversation in your homes and communities. And when you join us next week, invite a friend or many. For more diverse perspectives on everyday issues from everyday people around the globe, subscribe to our podcast at mamatalktalk.com forward slash a different take. And join our online community by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Until we meet again, I'm your host, A.B. Mambo, Sigashina, stay well.